I'm Scott Kahn, and this is the Orthodox Conundrum. I'm going to open up by telling you that it's 1140 on Monday night, and I just got back from picking up my son Natanel from the bus stop. He'd been in Jerusalem all day long. Let me explain why. Our daughter Tali's sister-in-law lives with her husband and three children in Sderot, right on the Gaza border. On the day of the massacre last week, her husband was called up to the army, and Tali's sister-in-law spent the entire day in their bomb shelter with their three kids, who are seven, four, and two. They were in the bomb shelter because there was a constant barrage of rockets, and even worse, much worse, there were terrorists roaming the streets looking for any Jews they could find in order to kill them. After 30 hours in that shelter, the army gave them an hour to get out, and last Sunday they came to stay with us. And while adding four more people into our household hasn't been simple, certainly more difficult for them than for us, it's actually been nice, and our kids, who are significantly older than the kids who are staying with us, have enjoyed playing with them and helping to take care of them. Anyway, the government officially evacuated the town of Steyrot a couple of days ago, so it's now providing a hotel for many of the evacuees in Jerusalem. So Tali's sister-in-law and her kids left yesterday to go to the Ramada, though they will likely be returning to us in a few days. Natanel spent a lot of the day at the Ramada playing with the kids in order to help out their mother. Then a few hours ago, Natanel went to the military cemetery on Har Herzl for the funeral of the son of one of his Roshay Yeshiva. The boy who was killed was a soldier in the Israeli army killed in the war that we're now fighting. Then Natanel took a bus home, and we picked him up. It's been that kind of day for so many people. It's been 10 days of that kind of day for so many people. I'm not entirely sure what I'm going to say tonight, I'm not really sure even what I want to say. I anticipate that this podcast will be somewhat disjointed. I'm recording this to share my thoughts with you largely for my own comfort, almost like Rav Soloveitchik wrote in The Lonely Man of Faith. All I want is to follow the advice given by Elihu, the son of Barachel of old, who said, I will speak that I may find relief. For there is redemptive quality for an agitated mind in the spoken word, and a tormented soul finds peace in confessing. As I said in our last episode, the schedule for release of this podcast is going to be atypical, the topics we cover are going to be atypical, and the length and structure of this podcast are going to be atypical. As long as Israel is fighting for its right to exist, as long as we're in the middle of a hot war with an intractable enemy who wants to kill every Jew on earth, yes, that's actually in the Hamas charter, as long as we're putting our sons and daughters and husbands and wives and mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters on the front lines, there's no way to talk about our normal topics in a normal way. So I hope you'll bear with me again, knowing that we'll go back to our regularly scheduled programming when things feel different, hopefully with God's help, with a decisive and permanent Israeli victory. Tonight, I'm just going to talk for a few minutes about some of the things I've been considering over the past couple of days. Again, I apologize in advance if this is not particularly organized. I hope that sharing some of my own thoughts, prepared not that well and recorded on short notice, will provide some food for thought and, I hope, some comfort and encouragement as we move forward a difficult and uncertain time. The most important thing that I want to emphasize is the incredible pride that I've been feeling as a member of the people of Israel, both those who have chosen to live in our ancestral land and those who do not. Two weeks ago, we were divided in ways that felt almost unprecedented. There were intense divisions and arguments between people on the right and the left, between religious and secular, and between different communities within those communities. And frankly, 
I would take all that arguing back in a second in exchange for going back to the way things were before Simchat Torah. But we don't have a time machine, and since we can't go back to the way things were, we can only look at our people as they are today. And I'm bursting with pride when I see the incredible solidarity that the vast majority of Jews are showing for each other and for the state of Israel. My daughter Tali sent me a report that said that this is the first time in history where more people came into a country in a time of war than left it. I have no idea if that's true. I do know that it's true that people have been coming into Israel. I don't know if this is the first time in human history that such a thing has happened, but it's certainly not typical. Members of Am Yisrael have a latent love of each other and a latent love for the land from which we come, whether we live here or not. We're all joined together, and unfortunately, sometimes it takes a terrible tragedy to remind us of that fact. I'd like to read a Dvar Torah I wrote about the Haggadah, actually, several years ago, where I ask why we invite guests into our homes at the beginning of the Seder, the section of the Haggadah called Halach Ma'anya. I think that these words are relevant today, too. Let me point out in advance what will become obvious through this Dvar Torah. I think that God has a special plan for the Jewish people and a special relationship with the Jewish people. That in no way means that other people who are not Jewish cannot also have a special relationship with God. Frankly, I know some people who are not Jewish who remain exemplars of righteousness and goodness and who are obvious representatives of divinity. With that introduction, here's what I wrote. Magid, the recounting of the story of the Exodus and one of the two biblically mandated mitzvot of the Seder, is recited on the night of Pesach following Kiddush, washing and eating the karpas vegetable and breaking the middle matzah. As soon as Magid begins, immediately preceding the four questions and the remainder of the rabbinic selections that are used to describe Yitziat Mitzrayim, a short paragraph beginning with the words Halach Ma'anya is recited. This is the bread of affliction which our ancestors ate in the land of Egypt. All who are hungry, let them come and eat. All who are needy, let them come and celebrate the Passover. This year we are here, next year in the land of Israel. This year we are slaves, next year free men. What's the purpose of this paragraph? It seems to be out of place because a true invitation should come at the beginning of the Seder rather than after Kiddush. Moreover, there's no indication that people are supposed to cry this paragraph aloud at their front doors as would befit a true invitation. Rather, it seems to be ceremonial and, accordingly, disingenuous. Finally, the invitation itself is halachically dubious. Only individuals who had previously arranged to eat the Passover sacrifice together are legally permitted to partake of that sacrifice, whereas the above paragraph states that all who are needy, let them come and celebrate the Passover, which is technically an invitation to eat that sacrifice with the rest of the household. Should someone accept, Jewish law would demand that the invitation be rescinded. The answer can be ascertained by noting that only two holidays in the Jewish calendar carry with them the potential punishment of karet, being cut off, should they be violated. Pesach, by eating chametz or refusing to offer the korban Pesach. And Yom Kippur, by eating during the fast or by doing forbidden work during the day. While the nature of karet being cut off has long been debated, it's unclear what it means. The simplest manifestation of this unfortunate consequence is clearly defined in the Torah. It means that that person is somehow cut off from the Jewish people. According to the scholars of Jewish mysticism, the Jewish people as a metaphysical entity, Knesset Yisrael, is identified with the divine presence, the Shekhinah. Knesset Yisrael does not refer to an individual Jewish person or even the sum total of all Jews alive today. 
Instead, it refers to Jewish people across time and space, the Jewish nation, that is, as a single, indivisible unit that transcends its current spatial and temporal boundaries. In a manner impossible to quantify scientifically, then, this metaphysical unit of which every Jewish individual takes part is the divine presence itself. The course of Jewish history, both ancient and modern, bespeaks this equation. We can never fully trace the sources of our faith. Indeed, the experience of the divine should exceed the intellectual content of any attempted proof of the truths of religion. Nevertheless, who is not struck by the strange, almost unbelievable reality that is the Jewish people? Its history is singular, its accomplishments unrivaled, its hold on the human imagination inexplicable. It was the primary source of monotheism, the most important idea in history. It gave the world the Bible, the most influential book in history. It spawned two religions that encompass half the population of the globe. It has repeatedly violated every rule of historical empiricism. People can love the Jewish people, or people can hate the Jewish people, but no one can remain indifferent to the Jewish people. The greatest crime in history was perpetrated against them, the most unlikely occurrence in modern history, the emergence of a thriving state of Israel, despite its being the most scrutinized and hated country on earth, happened to them. Their contributions to technology and medicine, academia and law, business and entertainment, physics and economics exceed their expected impact a hundredfold or perhaps more. Whatever this phenomenon means, it is unquestionably a source of wonder. I firmly believe that only one explanation makes sense of this perplexing reality. The equation of Knesset Israel and the Divine Presence. In a mysterious way, the Shekhinah acts through the Jewish people, and the Jewish people, regardless of their religious observance or belief, are permeated with the Spirit of God. The unmatched creativity of Knesset Israel is the unseen workings of God. The powerful emotions the Jewish people evoke are unconscious responses to the Divine Presence. If violations of Pesach and Yom Kippur result in injury to a person's bond with Knesset Israel, we can accordingly assume that giving these days the special regard they are due results in a strengthening of the same connection. For reasons known only to God, Pesach and Yom Kippur are the two particular holidays that allow us to connect to Knesset Israel, that is, to connect to the Divine Presence. Experiencing Pesach and Yom Kippur is, in fact, the experience of contact with the Divine Presence, the Shekhinah. However, there is one condition for such an experience to take place. Because of the equation of the Divine Presence with Knesset Israel, the Divine Presence can only be experienced if Knesset Israel is experienced as well. The fundamental attribute of God, His unity, must also be applied without exception to the people of Israel. The attempt to encounter God without simultaneously encountering the people of Israel is a contradiction in terms. A heart that is closed to Knesset Israel in toto is de facto also closed to the Divine Presence, the Shekhinah. For this reason, Magid begins with an invitation to every Jew to join us at the Seder. This is not a message to any individual person as much as it is a message to ourselves. In order to properly observe the Seder, in order to mystically experience the Shekhinah, we must first open our hearts to every member of the Jewish people. By accepting every Jew, religious or not, rich or poor. By internalizing the phrase, all who are hungry, all who are needy. By finding reasons to bring someone close rather than developing excuses to push that person away. We give voice to our desire to literally feel the Divine Presence joining us during the Seder. When we are receptive to the entirety of Knesset Israel, 
we are accepting the divine presence into our homes. Yom Kippur, accordingly, begins with the exact same message. Moments before the onset of the day, three weeks ago, before the emotional and spiritual power of Kol Nidre, we loudly state, we give permission to pray together with those who have been excluded from the community. In other words, we drop all communal divisions, deserve it or not, and invite every Jew back into the synagogue. In fact, we must do this because it is the absolute requirement in order to experience the Divine Presence on Yom Kippur. That's the Dvar Torah I wrote for Halach Ma'anya. And that sense of solidarity I described there as something that's desired has become a reality that so many of us have been feeling and experiencing over the past 10 difficult days. Let me add along with that, that along with the solidarity that we've experienced as a people, I have been so encouraged by dear friends of mine who are not part of the Jewish community, who have also reached out to express love, concern, and outrage. Although we as Jews sometimes feel that we're fighting the entire world, it's not true. There are some true, real friends, people who care deeply about us as a people and about us as individuals. I'm not going to mention any names because I don't want to embarrass anyone, but I'm sure they know who they are, and I want to tell them now that their support for me personally and for Israel in general has been a source of tremendous comfort and love. Because I've spoken about solidarity among Jewish people, I want to point something else out, too, that is not as encouraging. The only reason I'm mentioning it is because it must be said, and it's important to point out the difference between these atypical cases and the majority of Jewish people who have behaved in such an exemplary manner. Yesterday in my substack, Orthodox Conundrum Commentary, I talked a bit about how I generally believe that we must combat bad ideas with better ideas rather than silencing and canceling. But I wrote that I think that there is an exception when something isn't an idea per se, but an expression of evil. Evil and good can't really be debated. They exist in our souls, I believe. There's something we're supposed to know inherently. That is, by the way, my opinion of how to understand the Ramban on Vayikra 19.2 on the verse of Kedoshim to you, you should be holy, that we have an inherent sense of right and wrong. When people advocate evil, like defending or even celebrating the butchering and kidnapping of children and others, there could be no debate because we're not dealing with logical arguments anymore. We're talking about a clash between good and evil. In a case like that, we need to consider the defense of pure evil to be a form of heresy that needs to be silenced. But tonight I want to mention another form of heresy. Now, you probably know that I cannot stand the idea of heresy hunting. That's not what this is. Bear with me for a moment. Again, while the vast majority of the Jewish world has risen to the occasion, a small minority of the Jewish world has not. And I would broadly divide that small minority into four groups. The first group consists of those Jews who barely know that they're Jewish, who have no connection to Judaism, and who consider themselves Jews in name only, if at all. The second consists of Jews who are on the far left, like the people who, not long before I'm recording this, marched on the White House to demand that Israel stop its genocide, that's their word, of the Palestinians in Gaza. The third group are what's known as the Notori Karta, the ultra-Orthodox, so to speak, individuals who reject the state of Israel, not only in word, but in deed, demonstrating along with supporters of Iran and Hamas. I don't really have much to say about these groups' attitudes towards Israel. The first group just makes me sad. I expect nothing less than Israel hating from the second group, and I expect nothing more than supporting the worst terrorists in the world from the third group. 
My problem, and what I think is all of our problem, is the fourth group. These are Jews who are publicly Jews, who have a real platform, and who either have not used it or have chosen to avoid anything that might be the slightest bit inflammatory to anyone. And here's where I get to the idea of heresy and why I think it matters. As far as I know, there's only one place in all of Jewish liturgy where someone is actually described as a kofer, a denier. And it's in the Pesach Haggadah. It says there, the wicked son, Rasha, what does he say? What is the service to you? He says to you, but not to him. By excluding himself from the community, he has denied that which is fundamental, kafar bi'ikar. You should therefore blunt his teeth and say to him, it is because of this that the Lord did for me when I left Egypt, for me, but not for him. If he had been there, he would not have been redeemed. There are different opinions about what constitutes heresy, but in our liturgy, there is one place where it actually is mentioned and defined. That is somebody who sets himself apart from the Jewish community, somebody who refuses to join in their sorrows and their joys. The Rambam also talks about this person in Hilchot Tshuva in the third parak. He writes, and I'll translate as I'm going, somebody who separates himself from the ways of the community, even if he has not violated any precepts, but he separates himself from the community of Israel. He does not do mitzvot with them. He does not enter into their sorrows. He does not fast on their fasts. Rather, he walks in his own way, like one of the multitude of the world, as if he's not a Jewish person. He has no share in the world to come. The heresy I'm talking about tonight refers to people who have a platform and who could defend Jews and who could defend Israel and who could castigate Hamas, those who are trying to destroy Israel, and yet choose not to. The people who set themselves apart from the community, who have the opportunity to help the community and refuse to do so. It also reminds me of something in Megillat Esther. I'm going to read it in English in the fourth chapter. This is right after Mordechai hears about the decree to destroy all the Jews. When Esther's attendants came and told her about it, the queen was greatly distressed. She sent clothes for Mordechai to wear so he could remove his sackcloth from upon him, and he refused to accept them. Then Esther summoned Hatach, one of the king's chamberlains, whom he had placed at her disposal, and ordered him to go to Mordechai to learn what this was about and why. So Hatach went out to Mordechai to the city square, which was in front of the king's gate. Mordechai told him all that had happened to him and all about the sum of money that Haman had promised to pay to the royal treasuries for the annihilation of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the decree distributed in Shushan for their destruction so that he might show it to Esther and inform her and bid her to go to the king to implore of him and to beseech him on behalf of her people. Hatach came and told Esther Mordechai's words. Then Esther told Hatach and instructed him to return to Mordechai saying, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without having been summoned has but one law to be executed. Only the one to whom the king extends the golden scepter is spared. Now I myself have not been summoned to come to the king for the past 30 days. They relayed Esther's words to Mordechai. Then Mordechai said in reply to Esther, Do not imagine to yourself that you will be able to escape the fate of the rest of the Jews by being in the king's palace. For if you persist in remaining silent at a time like this, relief and salvation will come to the Jews from another source, while you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether it was just for such a time that you attained the royal position. 
This is more than Mordechai saying to Esther, Perhaps now that you're queen, you can use your platform for the good. He's saying, Perhaps this is the entire reason you were given a platform in the first place. Israel needs the world's support now. We see how quickly people turn on Jews and on Israel. People who have real platforms and choose not to use them in any meaningful way beyond perhaps a power of statement of sorrow are wasting the opportunity that presents itself once in a lifetime to use their celebrity for the greatest purpose possible. Whether we're speaking about Jewish celebrities who have been curiously quiet or well-known academics who decided not to speak up or Jewish university presidents who are afraid of the backlash from students who won't like what they have to say or people in the media who care more about a supposed objectivity than to the truth and fealty to the Jewish people, we need to call them out and demand that they use their voices and platforms to plead on behalf of Israel and the Jewish people. Maybe that's the reason that God gave them that platform in the first place. Again, I'm only mentioning the negative because so much else has been so uniformly positive. Let me conclude on a very different and perhaps unrelated note, but which I think is still important. It's something that I tweeted, and if you'd like to follow me, my Twitter account is at JewishCoffeeH. Here's the tweet. One, every innocent person who dies in Gaza is a lost world, an unspeakable tragedy. Two, innocent people are in harm's way because Hamas forces them to be there. Three, if Israel were to stop targeting Hamas as a consequence, Hamas wins, and October 7th will be repeated again soon. All three are true. Almost everyone in Israel agrees with all three points, which means that no Israeli wants to target civilians. And no one wants another Hamas massacre where 1,300 Jews lose their lives, 199 are kidnapped, and thousands more are injured. For those who castigate Israel because it doesn't avoid every civilian casualty, tell us what else we are supposed to do. Remember, when you hear that there are civilian casualties in Gaza, the reason is exclusively because Hamas puts his people and military infrastructure inside civilian homes and buildings, mosques, and hospitals. Israel does everything it can to avoid these civilians and warns them so that civilian casualties will be minimized. Every innocent who is killed represents a tragedy. But no army in the world does more to minimize civilian deaths than Israel. It is also true that no enemy in the world does more to put civilians in harm's way than Hamas. It is right to mourn the loss of innocence, but blaming Israel for that loss borders on anti-Semitism. Because what are they saying? Are they denying that Israel tries to avoid civilian casualties, despite overwhelming evidence that Israel tries to avoid civilian casualties? Are they demanding something of Israel that they would never demand from any other country on earth? And here's the kicker. If they somehow think that Israel is intentionally targeting civilians— like those fools from If Not Now and the other groups that talk about Israel's genocide and ethnic cleansing, why would Israel do that? Everyone knows that apart from being tragic, civilian deaths are used by Hamas to make Israel look bad, even if Israel were not a moral nation. It would make no sense for Israel to target civilians. And Israel is a moral nation. We're not perfect, no. Yes, we have a lot of work to do. But we're trying and Israel cares deeply about innocent lives. If someone says that Israel is intentionally targeting civilians, despite the fact that it's immoral and makes no military sense, given the backlash, 
That person claiming this is consciously or otherwise expressing an anti-Semitic canard about bloodthirsty Jews, vengeful Jews, evil Jews. And it should be called out not only as wrong, but as anti-Semitic to the core. I have a lot more to say, and I will soon in a further episode. But I wanted to share with you what I'm thinking about today. Let me end with a prayer that Israel defeat those who act towards its destruction, the people who have participated in the slaughter and the torture of countless people. May God thwart the plans of those who celebrate people who anticipate our annihilation and change the minds of those who have been misled. May the Pasuk, the verse we read this morning at the end of Rosh Chodesh Davidin, come true. Yitamu chataim min haaretz uvashaim od enam, which Bruria in Masachat Brachot explains as, let sins go away from the land, and as a consequence, with no more sins, there will be no more evil people. Have a good night. Thank you for listening, and may God bless Israel forever. I'm Scott Kahn, and this has been the Orthodox Conundrum.